Well, at the beginning of John's gospel in the New Testament, we get the story of the two would-be disciples, Andrew and Peter. Andrew and Peter had overheard that Jesus was referred to as the Lamb of God, and so they literally start to follow him. They start walking behind Jesus. And it was about this time as they're following Jesus that Jesus turns around, looks at Andrew and Peter and asks them, what are you seeking? What do you want? It's a provocative question, isn't it? We can imagine here at some level, right, this morning you're here because you have some interest in Jesus, in following Jesus. I'm assuming at some level that's true of everybody in this room. And so now as you're sitting here at church in the chair, Jesus looks at you and asks you the same question. What are you seeking? What do you want from me? What do you want from the church? What do you want from this sermon? What do you want from Christianity? What do you want? Your answer to that question, friend, is one of the most important things about you, because it will reveal what your heart's intentions are towards Christ. Remember, we are not only what we say we believe. We are, at the end of the day, what we love, and we love what we want. So what do you want from Jesus? Big idea this morning, be warned and be welcomed. Be warned and be welcomed. Be warned by the judgments of God and be welcomed by the Son of God. So again, we're here. We are at 2 Kings chapter 17. And we come to a major portion of the narrative of this book. Uh, Remember, Kings was always one book. First and 2 Kings was always one book. And it was one of the most, I would submit to you, it was one of the most significant points of the author when he began to write this book one of the most significant things was to explain why 2 Kings 17 happened. So in other words, 2 Kings 17, what we're thinking about this morning, is the exile of the northern tribes to Assyria. And one of the main portions of why he wrote this book was to explain what happened and why it happened. So let's go ahead and begin that. Take a look at chapter 17 there and let's ask this question. What happened? Let's just ask the question, what happened? We've been walking through all these chapters for months now. What happened? That's going to be answered in the first six verses. What happened answers in the first six verses of chapter 17. We learn in verses 1 and 2 about a new king by the name of Hosea. He apparently is an evil king, yet he's not evil as the kings before him. His evil is in some ways different. And it appears as though that maybe the the reason why his evil is different is because of what comes next in verse 3. Where it says, against him, against Hosea, against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. And so it appears the new evil in some ways is in Hosea's willingness to be treated as a colony of Assyria. Something that no king before them had done. Other kings, of course, have paid ransoms to other kings, but they'd always remained a sovereign nation as the Lord intended. But Hosea, he had given up the sovereignty assigned to Israel by the Lord, and they then just became just another colony in a different kingdom, in the Assyrian kingdom, not a sovereign nation of the sovereign Lord. So as long, though, as Hosea, this king of Israel, as long as he paid tribute, kind of paid a tax, as it were, to the kingdom of Assyria, they'd be fine. But we learn, take a look at verse 4, we learn, though, that Hosea begins to stop paying the kind of tax to be a part of the colony of Assyria, and he begins to pay it to the Egyptian king. This, of course, ticks off the Assyrian king. He then goes and attacks 
the nation of Israel. They then surround the capital city of Israel, Samaria at the time. And we learn in verse 6 that they uh, are besieging it for some three years and they finally break through. And this is significant. And then they carry off the Israelites east to Assyria, outside the land, east outside the land. So guys, I can't possibly emphasize enough the importance of this. For those of you that know the story of the Bible, we remember how the Lord had given this very piece of land and its milk and its honey as a gift to the people as part of the covenant. This was to be, Israel was to kind of be a kind of second Eden of sorts where God would dwell with his people in his place. And now, just like Adam and Eve, they were being exiled east of Eden. Kicked out of the land just as our first parents were. Which leads us to the next question. That's what happened, first six verses. Let's now ask the next question. Why did this exile happen? That's in verses 7 to verse 18. Why did this exile happen? Verse 7 gives us a clear answer. And this, the exile, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. So let me, before I comment on that, let me just say something real quick. I think this is a really instructive portion. I'm going to kind of step out of the sermon and the narrative to make a point. This is such a good example of what the Bible is and what the Bible does. Right in this passage, it's useful right here because unlike the modern televangelist that claims to have some secret knowledge that God gave him and unlike the newspaper that's just commenting on the daily events, the Bible, as we see right here, uniquely claims to be God's interpretations of human events. The text here gives us the divine knowledge of what has happened in history so that we might be instructed in the ways of God. So take a look at the passage again, 2 Kings 17, 1-6. It gives us the history. It's the same history that if you were to go to a history class at AU, I'm assuming you would get all the same. History, by the way, that has been verified and verifiable. But then in verse 7 to 17, we get God's interpretation of what happened, something only the Bible can do. So the Lord has ordained the Scriptures to teach us how we might have right fellowship with Him. And what we're learning is, is we cannot worship other gods. And so from his own voice, God's own voice working through human authors, we learn what God needs for us to know if we're going to live out the purpose of our design. So to say that a different way, to neglect the Bible is to neglect the divine interpretation of human events. And so that is why, friends, the church, the church of Christ is said to be the pillar and the buttress of truth. This, friends, is the one place that you should be able to go to, that people in this community, this is the one place that people should be able to go and not hear man's opinions about God, but to hear God's word to man. This is the one place you should be able to go and have confidence that you're going to see what does God want from us? Who is he? What's he like? And so we get that from submitting ourselves to his word as he tells us what has happened in times past that we might learn for ourselves today. Okay, well, back in here into the passage. Again, we've learned what happened. We've learned why it happened, right? Israel is exiled. They're kicked out of the land east of Eden again. The reason is because instead of conforming to the God that saved them out of slavery and into the promised land, instead, they conformed to the very same gods that the Lord had sent them 
to drive out. Instead of following the God that saved them, they follow the gods that were around them and they're exiled. Slide down to verses 15 to 17 there. Uh, there we get some 200 years of God's interpretation of events. In that passage, it's as though Israel is kind of summoned to stand into a courtroom where God is the judge and the bailiff, as they Israelites stand in front of the judge, it's as though the bailiff reads off their rap sheet for why they're going off to prison. Take a look at it. It says they despised his statutes and his covenant. They despised the warnings he gave. They went after false idols and became false. By the way, that word false could be rendered worthless. So they followed worthless idols and became worthless. So this this is how idolatry works, guys. This is how uh, all these things work. You become what you behold. The more that you behold something, the more that you want something and stare at it and long for it, the more you become that thing. We learn that they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord told them that they should not do like them. We learn they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. We learn that they made metal images of two calves and Asherah. That they worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. In other words, they just said that they literally worshipped creation. Verse 17, and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. They used divination and omens. They sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. There's their rap sheet. Pretty condemning. In short, to use the language of the prophets, the Israelites hoard themselves out to the gods around them. They were a nation of physical and spiritual prostitutes instead of remaining faithful to the God that saved them and covenanted himself to them. Instead of loving God, they begin to love other gods, conform to them. And throughout it all, we should note from the beginning, the Lord had showed them tremendous amounts of mercy. We had dinner with somebody this week in our church that's been encouraged just to see the mercy of God in the Old Testament. And we see it even here in the judgment. Take a look at the mercy of God in verse 7 and 8. The Lord delivered them from the slavery and then gave them into the land of promise. Look at the mercy of God in verse 13. He gives them his word at the beginning and he gives prophets to keep reminding them to grow up in that word. And how do these Israelites respond? Verse 14, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. So we see what happened, we see why it happened, and we now ask thirdly, well, what's the result? We've already seen it's the exile, but let's think about that a little bit more. We get uh, the result of their idolatry, their hundreds of years of idolatry. The result is seen there in verses 18 to 23. Take a look at verse 18. It kind of explains it. Therefore, in light of this rap sheet, therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And yet, read the very next verse. We find Judah themselves are not being faithful. More on them later in the book of Kings. But the result of all this idolatry, again, is exile. Or as it says there, they were removed out of his sight. And by the way, you can see that same language in verse 20 and verse 23. Three times it's emphasized, out of his sight, out of his sight, out of his sight. Intangibly, this means that they are removed from God's place of Israel. We remember that Israel was where God had promised to live with his people in the temple, right? Uh, Thus, the same reason, as you'll see next, 
they, where the Lord will send lions of judgment on the Assyrians because this was God's place. This was his land, as it were. So this God, this was God's place, special place where he was said to dwell. This was supposed to be a kind of heaven on earth, as it were. And God would not tolerate idolatry of any kind, just as he does it in heaven itself today. Therefore, the Israelites are removed out of his sight. But friends, this is not just mere geography. It's not just that they're taken from one place to another. This language also, this language of moving out of his sight, also indicates spiritual truths. The Israelites are out of his sight as it relates to the blessings of God. Their relationship is now going to be marked by the cursings of God. You see, part of those commands given to the Israelites that are talked about there in verse 13, for instance, those commands that they didn't listen to, part of them, they would have known well, well before they got into the land was this teaching on the blessings and the cursings that God gave them through Moses before they entered in the land. You can read about those this afternoon in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Kind of job descriptions, clarifiers before they go in, hundreds of years before the events of 2 Kings 17. And what you'll read there, this teaching of the blessings and the cursings of God, is what God is saying essentially in those passages is, listen, you, you, go, you walk this way, you're going to be under the blessing of God. It's going to be the good life. This is the way it's going to go. It's going to be good for you. But if you start to go on this other road, then you're going to live under the cursings of God. You're going to be under the curse of God, and therefore it will eventually lead you to exile. And so that's what they've done. When the Lord exiles the Israelites, it was, wasn't only him removing them from the land. He was also now relating to the northern tribes as though they were being under a curse, no longer under the blessings of God. That's also what it means by being cast out of his sight. Exile from his place and relationally they are under his curse. And yet take a look at verse 39. Amazingly, we still read after all of that, he will deliver you out of the hand of your enemy. Just as we saw last week, even when the Lord justifiably sends judgment upon his people, he's not only warned them and sent prophets to warn them, he's also telling them there's still room for deliverance on the other side of this. God's grace in judgment is even amazing. Well, friends, before we step away and make some assessments for ourselves, we have one more question to answer. What happens to the Assyrians as they come into the land? They take over. That's 2 Kings 17, 24 to 33. What happens to these Assyrians, the one that are used as God's judgment? God uses the Assyrians as an arm of justice. And we ask the question, all right, when they come into the land, since he's using them as an arm of his justice, will God just sort of overlook their idolatry? And the answer, of course, is no. As the Israelites are out of the land, uh, the Assyrians, like the Jews of old, come through the Jordan River and into the land. They bring people from all over every empire and all over their empire to repopulate Samaria, that capital city. And of course, when they come in, they bring their idolatry with them. And so, as I mentioned, as God's special place, he sends the judgment of lions upon these people because they don't fear the Lord. Again, this is how the Bible's different than the newspaper. The newspaper says some lions came. The Bible says God sent those lions. Nathan can't say that because I don't know. But the Bible tells us the story of God's perspective. 
And so since these lines are coming upon them, we, we learn there that they, these lines, this judgment is coming upon them because these Assyrians that have now come into the land, they don't, it says, fear the Lord. So somebody said, gets the bright idea, well, maybe we should go get one of those priests, you know, from Israel to come in, bring them back in here and teach all we Assyrians what it means to fear the Lord. So that's exactly what happens. We learn that in verse 28. Uh, that this priest shows up, he teaches them how to fear the Lord. Like, all right, guys, you need to know where you're at. All right, this is God's place. You need to know what, who the Lord is. You need to know how to fear him. But look at verse 29. Look at how the Assyrians respond. Every nation, though, still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of high places that the Samaritans, that's the Israelites, had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. So basically, even after hearing about how they need to fear the Lord, they still go on to put idols on top of Israelite idolatrous worship centers. So in other words, what you have happening here, it's idols on top of idols now. After being warned by the Lord. In verses 30 and 31, we read about how all these various idols that come into the land, these are interesting and just shocking kind of idols that are coming into the land, including, guys, more child sacrifice. This is how wicked these people are. But verse 32 says, they also have some priests of the Lord, as I've already mentioned. Take a look at verse 33. It even says there, so they, this is the Assyrians, so they have feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. And yet we read, do they fear the Lord? Take a look at the very next verse in verse 34. They don't fear the Lord. So it seems as though the author is using some high level of sarcasm. When he openly says they're trying to do both, obviously they don't actually fear the Lord. So these Assyrians, what we're finding, these Assyrians are a little different than the Israelites themselves. The Assyrians, as they come in, they are duplicitous in their idolatrous worship. They are deserving of more judgment themselves. And no one can seem to get it right. In God's place, under God's rule. Nobody seems to be getting it right. And so the final word is of this tragic story of this part of the story is right there in verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did. So they do to this day. The to this day means at the point of this writing. In other words, what he's saying there is all this syncretistic, syncretistic, duplicitous, choose your own version of God worship. It just keeps getting passed down. It keeps getting God keeps getting cheated on. God keeps getting ignored in favor of other idols. And they kind of go through the motions on the other ones. So in other words, they're trying to be to use the language of New Testament. They're trying to be in the world and of the world at the same time. In other words, to, put, to use an illustration, what they're saying is that the people in the land are sort of like they've covenanted to God. They're living with God and they go out and serve other idols and then they come back home to God every single day. Duplicitous in their worship. And that parents serves this verse, verse 41. This serves as a good illustration, a good warning for us parents. What or better yet, who are you passing down to your children? Are you, are we doing just as the Israelites did in passing down this mixed match of God? The very God that's around us, just sort of adopting whatever is around us and passing that on to our children? Is that what we're doing? 
Or are you, are we endeavoring to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Teaching them to love Christ and Christ alone. Teaching them to not conform to the patterns of the world around us. Beloved, this passage is here to warn us and to welcome us. And so let's think about that warning. That's how we'll spend most of the rest of our time. We'll come to that welcome at the end. So as we think about the warning that this Old Testament passage is teaching us, I can tell you a little cheat sheet for me. It's not so much a cheat sheet. It's just as clear for you. There's a kind of, there's a few passages in the New Testament that serve as the kind of secret decoder rings to understand the Old Testament. All right. They're not, again, they're not secret. They're right there for all to see. But nevertheless, a couple of those passages, one, when we read John 5 and Luke 24, when Jesus says the Old Testament is mainly about me, that's a kind of secret decoder passage. I know that the Old Testament, whatever it is about, it has to first point to Christ. The other secret decoder passage is Second Peter, Second, uh, First and Second Peter one, and Romans fifteen. We've looked at these throughout our series, but let me go ahead and re- read Romans fifteen. And I think what this will do, I'm going to frame this to see how we can apply Second Kings seventeen to us. Seventeen to us. Listen to what Romans fifteen says as to how we read the Old Testament. It says there, Romans fifteen four. For whatever was written in former days, that would be kings, for instance, whatever is written in former days was written, why? For our, circle that, for our instruction. Well, what's the instruction? That through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, kings, we might have hope. So the author of Kings wrote his book, for restoration church's instruction. That is, Kings is here to teach the new covenant community, to teach the church of Christ in the new covenant. That's what it's on. To teach us what, you say? To teach us, it says, endurance, endurance and encouragement in the scriptures that we might have hope in this world that is also so full of idolatry. Israel did not endure and they lost hope. So they lost the land, they lost God's blessing and were under the curse. You and I, beloved, have need for instruction in endurance and encouragement so that we don't lose the hope of heaven and begin conforming to the gods around us. That's why Kings is here. A lot of us, right, would love to come in here every Sunday morning and get a nice little, you know, number two from McDonald's, a nice little easy-going, tasty, little nice you know, popcorn and slushy sermon, make us feel a little better about ourselves, maybe improve a little bit and then go on about our day. But that's not the Bible that God gave us, friends. That's not the diet that God intends for you to be fed upon so that you can make it home to heaven. He gave us a Bible that is full of warnings. I'm with you guys. I'm I'm thinking about this as I've been preparing these sermons. Another passage on warnings or judgment. This Bible is full of cautionary tales that are meant to awaken us to the realities around us. It's meant to awaken us to the things that have become so normal that we stopped even noticing them. And yet they're becoming like cancer to our souls. Slowly and oh so discernibly, indiscernibly, veering us off the path of righteousness and onto the path to the land of Assyria, outside the land. Yes, beloved, we have need for instruction and endurance and encouragement of the scriptures that we might not lose hope. We are surrounded, beloved, by just as much, if not more, idolatry as Israel was. Do you know that? 
Do you know that? And the idolatry, friends, that is here in our land is insidious and subtle. And I want to be clear about something. America is not God's place any more than Russia is God's place. The world is his place. We are in the new covenant. But the idolatry in our land is insidious and subtle. Most of us are not tempted to follow some codified, formalized religion. But we are tempted to do as the Israelites did and claim to fear God, but go on worshiping the gods that are around us. And the gods that are around us is oftentimes that God of individualism, that God of self, that God of me. That's often what's around us in Washington, D.C. in 2022. Go on fearing the Lord. That's fine. And this, the gods that are around us, that's fine. Fear the Lord. But then do whatever it is you want to do. So the gods that are around us would teach us that it's fine to take the name of Christ and yet date just like the world. Take the name of Christ and yet fornicate like the world. Take the name of Christ, spend your money like the world. Take the name of Christ, spend your time like the world. Take the name of Christ and think of your careers like the world. Take the name of Christ and raise your children like the rest of the world. Take the name of Christ and think of Christ like the rest of the world. A kind of Christ that is culturally appropriated version, which happens to square with whatever the winds of change are teaching us at this moment. Unlike the unchanging Jesus. Friends, it's so easy to fall so hard to the gods around us. I think that we forget, friends, that idolatry is easy. That's what we're learning from kings. Jesus says, wide is the gate and what? Easy is the way that leads to destruction. Idolatry is easy. We forget that. Idolatry is easy because it's so normal and it's so popular and it's so indulgent. And idolatry is easy because it oftentimes keeps you in control of God. Oh, sure, you need to show up on a Sunday morning and offer some sacrifice, right? But even those sacrifices are a way for you to control the relationship. Maybe you neglect God a little bit, do something wrong. Well, just show up to church, offer a few prayers, burn a candle, throw a few bucks in the plate. All's good. As long as you know you're nice and well-intentioned and say you believe the right stuff. Friends, it's far easier to give into all of your desires and then find a God, find a church, and find a Bible that will do the same thing. That will just validate all of your pre-existing desires or the ways that your desires are conforming. It's easy to do that. It's far more easy to do that, to say that you fear the Lord and then just find a God, find a Bible, find a church, find a Jesus that just fits all of your existing passions. It's easy to do that. It's far more easy to do that than it is to follow a God that requires you to, well, take up your cross and follow him. It's far more difficult to do that. It's far more difficult to do as Jesus says, to die to yourself and to live to him. It's far more difficult to believe that there is only one name given under heaven by which men can be saved. It's far more difficult to believe in a literal hell like Jesus talked about all the time. It's far more difficult to make disciples and teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded you. It's far more difficult to love enemies and forgive as we have been forgiven. It's far more difficult to to not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
It's far more difficult, friends, to, to treat those that take the name of Christ and live unrepentant lives. It's far more difficult to do that and treat them as Gentiles and tax collectors. That's far harder. Which is why Jesus says the gate that it leads to eternal life is hard and few will enter it. Friends, I tell people all the time when it comes to hard matters of matter of correction or church discipline or whatever the case may be, I tell people all the time, it would make my life way easier if I didn't have those convictions. Like my life would be way easier if I just backed off on some of this stuff and just let you do whatever you want to do. I don't do this stuff because I get some joy out of it. Although there's joy in Christ for obeying his commandments, to be clear. But the point is, is I love Jesus. I believe he's the Lord. And the best way I understand I can love him and love you is by doing what he says. And calling you to do that. And so the question for us this morning is, what are those idols in your life? that are discipling you to conform to the patterns of the world? What are those idols in you and I's life, me too, that we're tempted to conform to the gods around us? What are they? Idolatry is defined in Romans 1 as, quote, exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Idolatry is treating anything, including good things, guys, as ultimate things. And we should know our hearts are really good at making idols. And we're very efficient idol makers, our hearts are. We can make idols out of our kids, our marriage. We can make idols, Nathan Knight, can make idols out of the ministry of the church. I can make an idol out of that. So what idols are you tempted to follow? Where is it you have need, beloved, for instruction and endurance and encouragement that you might not lose hope? The author of Kings has written this down to warn you and I that if we are not careful, if we do not discipline ourselves for godliness as the New Testament teaches us, then you and I could share the same fate as those we read about here. Exile from the heavenly land. That's exactly what hell is. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. Hell is being exiled out of God's place of blessing and delivered to your own passions and under God's cursing just as we see here. Exile from the place of blessing, of heavenly blessing. Listen to the words of Christ as he talks about this himself in Revelation 22, some of the last words of the Bible. It says there, Revelation 22, 14 and 15, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that is, wash their robes in the blood of Christ. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside, there's the exile. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Friend, the Bible is so incredibly unified and consistent from Genesis to Revelation. Adam and Eve are exiled, Israel exiled, and hell itself is exiled. Beginning to end, one uniting story. The Bible presents a consistent and unified vision for all of us. Heaven and hell. And I want to be clear, guys. None of us deserve heaven. I don't. And all of us deserve hell. And the way that we get to hell is by following the idols around us. Not living that repentant life. Not living for the glory of Christ and the good of neighbor. But for ourselves alone, disobeying his commandments. And so will we receive the instruction for endurance and encouragement here that we might have gospel hope 
Or will we not endure as Israel and find ourselves outside the land and under God's curse? That's a question we all have to ask for ourselves. Now, as I hear this or as I say this, I can imagine there being some five responses to all of this. Five, and I'll mention them, brief, I'll mention them briefly. The first response to something like this, to a message like this, to what we're learning in 2 Kings 17, the first response is the obvious one, right? Is that you're just like the Israelites. Either you're committing outright idolatry or you're trying to have it both ways. You're conforming to the gods around, around you and claiming to fear the Lord. Claiming to fearing God and yet keep serving idols. And you're not interested in repenting as the Israelites. That's the first response. You listen to a guy like me and you just dismiss me as the Jews of old dismissed the prophets. You love those idols and you believe they will give you what you want and so you just won't turn. And again, you're free, friend, to do that. You're free to stay on the wide and easy path that leads to the gate of destruction. In that way, friend, God will give you exactly what you want. That's one of the most scariest things in the world. He'll give you exactly what you want. Romans 1 says he just hands you over to the passions of your flesh. But the point is there in that, friend, is that you are left, you're free to make that choice, but you're also free to pay, you must pay the consequences of those choices. You're free to jump off of Mount Everest, but you have to pay the consequence of defying gravity. That's the judgment of God. Now, some of you may say, Nathan, all right, I'm I'm new, I'm I'm kind of thinking about Christianity, where's all that love stuff, where's all that forgiveness stuff at? Friend, love and forgiveness are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all yours. Forgiveness, love is all yours. If you would but drop that idol and run to Jesus and find him as Lord and life. Believing his judgment. Here's the gospel, friend. Believing that his judgment for your sin is your payment. Believing his judgment is your judgment for your idolatry. Friend, you should know, if you don't know this already, the very first sermon that Jesus preached. You can go read about it in Mark 1. The first sermon he preached was repent. And believe the gospel. And so if you don't do that. If you don't repent of that sin. And believe that gospel. And follow after Jesus. Then you're left to make the payment for yourself. And you say well Nathan. Are you sure that's true? Is that just your interpretation? Well listen to Jesus' words. In John 3.36. I'm sure all of you know John 3.16. We'll listen just to a few sentences below that. Same conversation. When Jesus says whoever believes in me. Believes in the son. Has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Just as it did for the unrepentant Israelites. So the call to you, friend, is to repent. To throw down your idols and to flee to Christ and find him as Lord in life. Believing that he paid the penalty of your idolatry at the cross. The second response is for the Christian with the overly tender conscience. You love the gospel and you're laboring to die die to those idols that bring you down, but you fail like we all do. And you hear a message like this and you start asking yourself, oh no, am I one of those Israelites drifting towards Assyria? And you live in kind of a constant state of worry and condemnation, thinking yourself to be cast out. And yet you believe the gospel. You've been affirmed by the members of this church. You remember your baptism where the church affirmed your salvation as well. And yet your conscience, though, lives loudly in condemnation after sermons like this. 
Well, Christian, if that's you, listen to the words of your Savior. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. Read that line again, tender conscience Christian. I will never cast out. If you've truly come to Christ, you came by the will of the Father. You are kept by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Son. Jesus was already cast out for you, Christian, on the cross. He bled on Calvary's hill for you. That was his blood. And therefore, his blood is counted to you as your blood. It's been paid. The ransom note has been paid. And because it has, you needn't worry if you will be cast out. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He will hold you fast. You won't hold you fast. You'll be terrible, just like me. Join the crowd. He will hold you fast. Trust him. Look to him to strengthen you and to to sustain you and bring you home. Yes, Christian, be warned. Most certainly you should. But do not look to yourself. Look to him to get you home. As one old saint of old said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. Third response to a sermon like this, to a passage like this. The third response to the exile of Israel is to be that of a Pharisee. Namely, you're one that may be listening to this and you're thinking of that other person or that other group that you really want to hear this sermon. You're thinking now, I can't wait to get this sermon into the hands of insert blank. Or if only that group on Facebook could hear this sermon. Right now, you've not even hardly given a moment's thought of your own idolatry that you're participating in. Instead, you are focused on another person or another group of persons' idolatry that you can't wait for them to hear. Listen, friend, I'll assume the best about you and trust that other person or persons do need to hear and be warned of their idolatry. But, friend, so do you and so do I. Don't waste this opportunity to examine yourself To pray to God and ask Him to reveal where you are compromising. Where you are adopting the worship of the gods that are around you. Friend, never waste an opportunity to invite the Spirit of God into your life in order to expose idols that are down in there. And there are three ways to identify idols. At least three ways to identify those idols as you think about it. Three ways. Think about what angers you. There's probably an idol down in there. Think about what you fear. There's probably an idol down in there. And most certainly, what's the culture really loud about? Right? There's probably something, an idol down in there. Pay attention to those three ways. You can identify idols. Trace them back. And then, friends, say with David in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Friend, don't be preoccupied with the idols of others. Be aware of the idolatry in your own heart. And then from that, go and call them to repentance. Fourth response to 2 Kings 17 that is warning us that we need endurance and encouragement in the Scriptures that we might not lose hope. Fourth response is one that I fear is the most common this morning. I'm afraid that it might be. I hope it's not. And that is the response of vague interest. You've heard this sermon a million times. 
here we go. Another Baptist preacher up there talking about hell. Right? Or you hear this and you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, right. Yeah, I need, yeah, I need to, uh, I need to think about these things a little bit. Right? But right now you're thinking like you're bare, you're barely awake. You're literally barely awake in this moment. Right? Or you're thinking about what we're going to have for lunch. Or you're thinking about, okay, yep, heard this one. I need to work a little harder. Yeah, you know, read my Bible, pray, go to church. What, what's that? Yeah, I'll, I'll work on that a little bit. That kind of response. And I get it. I, listen. I'm a pastor. Do you know how many times I listen to sermons? Not even on my own. I have to listen to myself. But like I listen to other people's, I read books and these things. I can see how it can be easy just to kind of grow weary of this stuff and just sort of like, yeah, 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 off it goes. But friends, this passage, this book is a wake-up call for us. We wouldn't need calls to not love the world unless they were real temptations. We wouldn't need calls to not love money. We wouldn't need calls to love one another. We wouldn't need calls to not forsake the gathering of the church. We wouldn't need calls to whatever it is the Lord's come in, unless they weren't real temptations. Every single day, friend, the world is discipling you and I. Every day, in a thousand ways. Your social media feed, your favorite TV shows, in some ways, friends, they are blunting your conscience every day. We've got to be aware of that. I'm not telling you to not watch that or not do that. I'm just saying be aware of it. Making it easier and easier for you and I to slip off the path of righteousness and onto the road east of Eden out to Assyria. I want to to read for you those that maybe have vague interest and are not awakened. Let me read for you Ephesians 5, 14 to 16, where it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And I love this. And Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. Why? Because the days are evil. Friends, seek the face of Christ every day. Don't fall asleep in this world. Be defined by Christ. Be oriented by Christ. Be satisfied by Christ. Be loved by Christ. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And let Christ shine on you. The love of Christ, the favor of Christ, the commands of Christ, whatever, all the goodness of Christ to shine upon you every day because the days are evil. Fifth and final response. And this is the healthy response. This is the, this is the response, I think, that the author of Kings is trying to get us to do. Repent and believe on Christ every day. Evidently, this is teaching us, this passage is teaching us about the frailness of humanity. And it's teaching us about the strength of God. Strength of His judgment and the beauty of His mercy. And so the response, the healthy response to this passage would be to take stock of your life and doctrine. To run to Jesus and rest in the gospel knowing that he will get you home. Receive the instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, you might maintain that hope. And by the way, friends, I didn't read for you the very next verse. Can I do that now? That's Romans 15, 4 is what I've been quoting, right? May the, uh, that we would receive the instruction of endurance Encouragement from the scripture. We may not lose hope. Look at the very next verse, 5 to 7. And may the God of endurance, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, the you there is plural, in accord with Christ Jesus, 
that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You see what he's saying? He's telling you where to look in order to endure. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live. Friend, God is the God of your endurance. You are not the strength of your endurance. You are not the God of endurance. God is. God is here to encourage you in that, to grant you, to grace you, as it says, to live. As I said to the tender conscience, look to Christ in order to endure. This is the second part of the big idea, and I'm going to finish here. Be warned by the judgments of God and be welcome to the Son of God. Christ has already welcomed you at the cross. And so when he took the punishment for your sins on the cross, he and offered you to follow him, right? I've been thinking about Galatians a lot this week. He became cursed for us. He took the curse. He took the exile on behalf of those that believe. And so therefore in Christ, when he took that punishment for his people, he took the curse. He welcomes you to him. He welcomes you to bring all of your idolatry to him. Bring it all to him. He has been cast out on our behalf. And so be welcomed by Christ. Come boldly, as you heard uh, Nick pray earlier, come boldly before the throne of grace and confess your idolatry to him. Don't keep it from him. Bring it to him. Confess your weaknesses. Receive then his forgiveness. Receive the power of the spirit to walk in the light. Don't hide your idols. He already knows them. He's given you this passage this morning to welcome you again. You can bring your sins, you can bring your guilt, you can bring your idols to the throne of Christ. He welcomes them. He welcomes you to bring those idols to the cross because he knows that's where they die. He won't cast you out of his sight. If you throw your idols upon him and receive his forgiveness, he'll enable you to walk in the light as he is in the light. He'll take you home to heaven with him. He'll not cast you out of his sight. He's our hope. And not only that, if you heard in the command, there was another little element in that. Did you catch it? Kings was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Therefore, it says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Friend, killing idols is not an individual solitary affair. You can't do it on your own. I talk about this with members of our church that just sort of live on the fringes. Man, you're going to get picked off, man. But of course, remember, Christ is our hope. Come in. We're welcoming you into the body of Christ. So friend, welcome the church into this fight. Welcome the church into the putting off and the putting on, to exposing idols, to killing them in the light of God's glory and grace. Welcome the church, the body of Christ. Confess to a trusted brother or sister in Christ where you're struggling to believe or live out your faith. Confess to a brother or sister some doctrine that you're beginning to doubt. And then ask you to, ask them to pray with you. Ask them to hold you accountable. Ask them to read something together. Think thoroughly about that. Come to the pastors. Help us help you. Be warned and be welcomed to Christ and to one another. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The church, beloved, is the body of Christ that was meant to help you endure and get home. It's God's body that he meant to be his hands to carry you home. And 
If you don't come in the life of the church, then you're losing out on the hands and the feet of the body of Christ to help you. So I leave you with one question. One question that I began with. You've begun to follow behind Jesus. He turns and asks you, what do you want? What are you seeking in me? I hope that we'd all say, having considered the goodness of God in this gospel, I hope that you'd say, where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. I'm weak. You're the Lamb of God. You're warning me. I need to be warned. You've loved me. You're here. You're telling me the truth. You're inviting me to follow you. I want you because whatever it is you tell me I need, that's what I want. That's why I'm following you. I want you, Jesus. Where else would I go? I hope that's what we would all say this morning, having considered the glory of Christ in the ways that he warns us and welcomes us to himself. Don't follow the gods that are around you. Follow Jesus wherever he may take you. And yes, he takes you to a lot of valleys. But he didn't take you there without him having gone there first. He'll get you home. Three days later, he rose. He ascended and he's coming. And he'll get us home. Our strength is not in him, or not in ourselves. Our strength is in him. He's the king. He's the one that has accomplished our salvation. He's the one we trust in to bring us home. He's going to hold us fast. And so may we, as we trust, as we're welcome, as we're warned, and as we're welcome to Christ, and as we're welcome to one another, may we say with Paul at the end of our lives, whenever that might be, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. May we say with him. And so, beloved, look to the God of encouragement and the God of endurance. Keep hope as we live out our lives together, looking home to heaven with Christ. Let's pray to him. Amen. Lord, we're saddened when we read these words of 2 Kings 17. We consider how they began. How you gave them everything, most importantly yourself. And that they didn't listen. And then they went outside the gate. And justifiably so. Lord, we deserve to go outside the gate too, every one of us. But Jesus, we rejoice that you went outside the gate for us. You went outside the city to the hill of Golgotha. And you became a curse for us. You went to Assyria for us that believe. You took the penalty. You became cursed. You took it all. And so, God, may we, with glad hearts, repent of our sins, repent of our idolatry, repent of the ways in which we are just like these Israelites, conforming to the gods around us. And may we trust in that price. Trust in you, Jesus, who took the curse on our behalf. And then with the power of the Spirit, may we, having been welcomed to you, Jesus, welcome one another and follow you home to heaven alongside one another being a bright light, pointing others to the way that leads home, the hard way, the narrow gate. Oh, Jesus, it's hard. Help us, and we beg of you, come soon. We ask this in your name. Amen.